I'd like to welcome everyone back. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome for the first time to the second session in a three-part class uh, entitled, What Stops the Plague? given by Ms. Miriam Gedweiser. So Miriam Gedweiser is a faculty member at Drisha and teaches Talmud and Tanakh at the Ramaz Upper School. She has a bachelor's in history, uh, the history, philosophy, and uh, social studies of science and, and medicine from the University it's one of thing. Chicago. <laughs> yeah, I, I know it's one thing. It's just a lot of one thing. Um, no, I know. Exactly. From the University of Chicago and a JD, nice and simple, from the NYU School of Law. Miriam studied at Madrash at Lindenbaum and in the Drisha Scholar Circle. She previously practiced commercial litigation at a law firm and clerked for the Honorable Deborah Freeman, uh, United States Magistrate Judge, I looked that one up, in Manhattan. Miriam serves as a guest lecturer at synagogues and programs around the Northeast and has written on topics of Jewish and Torah interest for the Lairhouse, the Forward, the Center for Modern Torah Leadership Blog, and Project 929. Miriam lives in Teaneck, New Jersey, with her family. And we had a wonderful class next week. If you missed it, feel free to check out the recording on Drisha. But otherwise, let's get into this class. If you are joining us on Zoom, feel free to turn your camera on, your microphone off, unless we're having a discussion period to minimize noise. And if you're not comfortable with that, hit up the chat. If you are watching on Facebook Live, share questions and comments there. We will bring them over here. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, hi. So Ms. Gedweiser, please take it Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, great. So welcome back. Last week, I said, well, I called it this what stops the plague, but it was really more about what starts the plague. But um, this week is more about what stops the plague. So thanks. Um, and I will, I guess, share the source sheet in a second. Um, I So there's a few plagues in the Chumash, in the, the Pentateuch, I guess we call it. Um, I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about one of them. Um, it's not, it's actually like the chronologically possibly the last one, but um, I'm going to talk about it today and maybe we'll talk about another one of them next week, hopefully. Um, because that was mostly for thematic reasons, um, but that means there'll be a little bit of catching up on what, what it, previously in plague installments in the Bible, we'll need to do a little bit of that. Um, okay, so I'll share. I, I made a minor error. I hope you will forgive um, in the source sheet, which is that I, um, is that this? Yes, which is that I forgot to change the header where it says one Rabbi Akiva student. So it should say two, Pinchas. Um, but Teatzar HaMagifa is my title, right? And the plague was stopped. As we're gonna see, some people think it's not really even a plague, but okay. Um, so we're gonna start with this story, which is Bamidbar 25, right? Numbers 25. Numbers 25 has two more verses, which it, by the, I would say by the Jewish reading are mostly something else. Um, I think what I'm going to do is we're going to read the story. I'm going to highlight some of the, the issues. I'm going to actually go near the end of the source sheet after that to source, I believe, eight. We'll look at the Talmudic, um, read some of the Talmudic reading of this story. Um, and then we'll come back to some of the medieval commentators, just because um, I put them in an order that I felt was like, conceptual and then I realized it's not really fair to read the thing that everybody else had already read after you read what they say meaning like everybody knows everybody who we're going to read knows the Gemara so we should read that first so that's the plan so um I'll read I guess can people see yeah right so Vayashib Israel Bashi team this will we will come back to the place she team so you could put a mental pin there and that the the people by Gachel could mean like began or they sort of profane themselves as translated here to, I don't know how you want to translate these note, to the daughters of Moab. But as they're having this sort of like sexual congresses, they also start doing idolatry with them. Um, and the people, presumably mostly the male people, um, ate with them and bowed down to their gods. Right? And Israel became sort of attached to Baal Peor. God got angry with Israel. 
So this is one of our, this what this pasuk is a pasuk that we're going to think about a lot, okay? Take all of the heads of the people. Hoka means basically to impale them to God, neged Hashemesh, before the sun, meaning in broad daylight. And God's anger will go back from Israel. So I know if you were following in the English, well, that's how they read. Have them publicly impaled. What does God want Moshe to do? Kill a lot of people. Kill a lot of people. Well, how many people? Like in an order of magnitude type people. The leaders of the people. So let's let's take the number 600,000 as like the number of, of say like adult males, right? Um, how many of them are leaders probably? Five hundred, maybe, maybe a few hundred. That sounds plausible, right? Um, Seventy. My mother says maybe she's thinking of like the Sanhedrin, right? Um, right, like some number that is probably less than a thousand, but non-trivial and would be possibly like a pretty big spectacle. And it seems like those are the people who are supposed to be executed, and that's going to remove God's anger. So now here's what Moshe does. But you Moshe El Israel. Moshe said to the, the judges of the people, Hirgu Ish Anashav Each of you should go and kill those among your men who are attached to Balpur. So pop quiz, has Moshe done what God said? Doesn't look like it. Okay. And this is going to be uh like a point of a lot of interpretation. Well what is going on there, right? Um it seems like Moshe is not doing what God said. Okay. All right. And a certain man from among the Jews came. He brought before to his brothers the Midianite woman. There's a sort of like a little, um, there's an interesting issue here that's like there's a fluidity, it seems, between people being identified as Midianites and Moabites. It's not our concern, but it is a concern of many of the commentators. Um, but in any case, for our purposes, let's 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 assume that we can somehow smooth that over. Um, so before Moshe, let call it up to Israel, before all of the people, so he brings this woman, right, presumably to have sex with her, right, and Moshe and all of the Israel, Hema, they, presumably those people who were just named, are crying at the house of the tent of meeting. Why are they crying? So like that's also sort of an interesting touch point. Why why might they be crying? I would all the sacrifice people. Say again. Maybe Sue first, and then my mother. Or you could put it in the chat. Right. So maybe they're crying about um, the sacrifice people. Right. They're they're crying because they know people are about to get killed. Right. We don't actually. So it doesn't actually say that anybody's gotten killed, but we that seems to be on the agenda. Right. So maybe they're sort of crying about this big that thing. Anything else that they might be crying about? Just the events of the itself. The, the feeling maybe is sort of some sort of lawlessness or we've gone awry. Um, but right. So that's that's what it seems like. OK. Um, and OK. And Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen, saw, saw something, okay? This is another sort of like, like this story, we, I feel like we tend to think of the story of Pinchas as having a lot of details because it comes up in two parshiot. So you get to talk for like two weeks. It's like the end of Parshat Balak and the beginning of Parshat Pinchas. So if you follow along with the Parshat, you can talk about it twice. And like the after story actually is pretty detailed, but the story itself has several sort of holes, lacunae, if you will, right? That are gaps, right? Interesting things. So one of them is this. What did he see? Pinchas Malazar saw, right? Maybe he saw this situation, right? He got up from out of the people and he took a spear in his hand. And he came behind the, so there's a machloket as to what kuba is. Is it the stomach or the tent? Um, so, you know, he came into wherever this guy was, either into a tent or in, out in the open and stabbed him in the stomach. It seems like they're sort of like mid-coitus and he skewers them both. 
and and then the plague stopped, or that if we want to translate it more um, vaguely, we could say the smiting stopped from B'nai Israel, which like, oh, there was a plague. Okay, maybe that's why people were crying, as we're going to see. Um, but that's sort of like an interesting thing that just sort of they just snuck in there, right? Um, 24,000 people died. By the way, a number that we met last week in the students of Rabbi Akiva. So that's, I don't know if anybody makes that connection, but that's an interesting thing to notice. The numbers 12,000 and 24,000 appear in other stories of Rabbi Akiva, so I'm not sure that this is where that comes from, but um, that's an interesting thing, right? So we have this thing. We, Moshe is told to do a thing, and either he doesn't do it or he does something like it or it's not clear. Everybody's very upset. There's one guy who's sort of making a public spectacle of flaunting whatever order they're trying to impose. We're going to find out that he's not just any guy in a minute, right? So here, here's our new Parsha. God said to Moshe, Pinchas Belazar, I don't know, I always hear this in the voice of like the Moel, right? Heshivat Hamati. Um, there's one Moel in Washington Heights who like I have his voice in my head, which a lot of verses that he did, right? Heshivat Hamati be Bnei Israel. He has sort of turned my anger away from Bnei Israel, Bikan Oet Kinati, in his being sort of um, avenging my zealousness, let's say, Betocham, in their midst. Below Kiliti at Bnei Israel Bikinati, and I didn't therefore sort of Kiliti like finish off Bnei Israel with my anger. Right or with my zealousness, or therefore tell him shalom. I will give him this covenant of peace. Right. An interesting question is what is the brit shalom and how does it relate to this brit kunatolam? Right. So it seems like Pinchas is going to, was not previously going to be a kohen, a priest, but now is. Right. Because he was zealous for God and he did he kaparad for them. What is kapara? Who knows? Right. He atoned. We usually translate, he covered up, he something for them, right? The shame. And by the way, here's the name of the guy. The guy was Zimri ben Salu, who, by the way, is a chieftain of Shimon. And the woman is a, um, a princess of Midian named Cosby. Okay. Um, so this sort of like provides interesting color on the previous thing. It's not just like one random guy. It's like a person who was among the leaders who was called upon by Moshe to say, hey guys, let's get this situation under control by executing a lot of people who, is, uh, who sort of instead is like, actually, I think the situation is perfectly fine, right? Um, and I think that like the, that's sort of something that's in the shot already. Like, right, there, there's some sort of a breakdown in a shared standards of conduct, let's say. Um, and that the Magifa is almost like snuck in there as like a, a thing that's, we don't really know when it starts, we just know when it ends. Um, well, the literal scapegoat, the question in the chat is, is there a relationship between kapara and scapegoating? So the literal scapegoat, right, this Seir Azazel does, is part of a kapara ritual on Yom Kippur for sure. Um, I think that I don't know, you know, this is like a, a Shlomo Zakir question, actually. He knows a lot about atonement. I've only started to read about it a little bit. Um, right, it seems like in some ways, right, well, let me talk about Kapara and let me say part of maybe what's happening here. Right? Kapara is, to some degree, it's some way of sort of like ritually removing a sin or a defilement through some sort of like, yeah, like a ritual that kind of consumes it, right? Um, or like, you know, the ritual killing of the animal and then its consumption by the Kohanim sort of like ends it. So in this context is it is like the killing of Zimri, like the ritual killing that sort of like, if you mean by scapegoating, sort of like putting all of the guilt onto that one situation and then expunging it, there, it could be that there's something like that going on here. Um, yeah. Kofrenov show comes up a lot, but I don't remember exactly where. Um, so part of the question is going to be, right, so like you have this bad thing that needs to be expunged, and part of the question is what is about Pinchas? Right? Whatever Pinchas has done is the thing that stops the plague, right? The second he does that, it turns out there's been this plague that's been killing like 24,000 people, which is a lot, right? And it just ends like that. Um, so I guess I want to sort of explore some of the ways that Pinchas is portrayed. In first in rabbinic literature and then in like the medieval mefarshim, some of the ways that Pinchas is portrayed to get a better sense of like everybody knows that this is in the story. Whatever Pinchas does is the thing that stops the problem. And then I want to go back and look at some of the medieval mefarshim about sort of their their understanding of what is the problem and what were the failed attempts to stop the problem. Meaning maybe what God told Moshe and then what Moshe actually did. 
if that uh, makes sense. So I'm gonna, and then at the very end, I'm gonna come back to a little uh, adrasha, shall we say. Um, so I'm gonna go to source seven, which is the Mishnah and Gemara in Sanhedrin. I had a, a high school student actually wrote about this for a paper this year. Um, yeah. Okay, so there's a Mishnah. I, this is part of the Mishnah. It's um, it's like an intense Mishnah in Sanhedrin. Um, so we have these set of people. So this is the, I want to say the ninth parak of Sanhedrin. Um, this is a part of Sanhedrin that's talking about various forms of the death penalty. And it turns out that there are some people who get the death penalty, but only it's like unofficial death penalty right? Um, they're not really death penalty, they're kind of death penalty. There's three people, we care about one of them, right? Somebody who steals a kasava, whatever that is, right? One who curses somebody else with a sorcerer, right? Like, you know, you go to your sort of uh, traditional magic practitioner and get them to curse someone else, it sounds like, right? Which maybe is not, um, you know, maybe magic is a, is a crime, a death penalty crime in the Torah, but maybe getting somebody else to do magic is not. That, that would be my guess, but I'm not sure about that. Right? And somebody who engages in intercourse with an Aramean woman, meaning any non-Jewish woman, right? Kanaim pogim bo. I left off bo. Sorry. Right? Kanaim pogim bo. This is the rule, right? It's classic Mishnah structure. Cases, rule. These three cases are cases, the third case, right? The rule is kanaim pogim bo. Zealous people either may or should pogea bo. Should strike him. Meaning there's no death penalty right? It's not, these are not death penalty offenses. How does the death penalty, which we're, as we're going to see in Halacha later, right? The death penalty, the way the rabbis imagine it in Sanhedrin works with a whole bunch of procedural safeguards, right? You have to have two witnesses, two male Jewish witnesses who say, hey, don't do that, right? Or you're going to get the death penalty because that's against the Torah. And you say, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway, right? So like, this is the opposite of that, where first of all, you're not going to get the death penalty from a court. And second of all, the person who's doing it, it doesn't sound like they're warning you, right? They're just sort of like walking up and they're so incensed that they're going to take the law into their own hands, right? And this is like a classic locus of like vigilantism in the halacha, right? Like, you know, is kind of, is, is this kind of zealous, zealotry like a good thing, right? Is it what makes these circumstances ones in which it's appropriate? Um, and it seems like this is, right, this halacha is based on, is built around Pinchas and the Gemara is going to talk about how it, it relates to him, right? And as is often the case, the Gemara likes to make the the figures of the Chumash stories into um, rabbinic scholars, right? People who sit around talking about halacha just like the rabbis themselves. So I skipped a little bit. So here's just, just to get a sense of what Kanaim Pogibo means, right? Amarev Chista, Habalim Loch, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I saw this guy Zimri sleeping with Cosby, is that a situation where I should be zealous and kill them? Ain Morilo means you don't tell him, oh yes, go do that, because the whole point is that this is extrajudicial, right? Um, right, Itmar Nami, right? And then there's a, a MRAic statement that supports that, right? Um, right, so this is sort of emphasizing what Kanaim Pogimbo means. It's really outside of the ordinary course, not only of the court system, but even of the rabbi's teaching of halacha, right? You teach this in the abstract, but when the case is in front of you, you would never tell somebody, yes, it's your turn to do that. We're going to see how that works out. Um, one sec. Um, right, extrajudicial and spontaneous, right? Um, okay, right, because there's something about, it's supposed to, Right, there's something about the kana'ut, right, the zealotry that's it's supposed to really embody. And if you have to stop to ask, then maybe you're not so zealous after all, right? And furthermore, right, Zimri actually, if he had turned around and killed Pinchas, he would have been doing fine. He would not have been held accountable for that because, um, well, actually, has two things, right? If Zimri, if Zimri had not been in the middle of having intercourse at the time, then Pinchas had killed him. You can't punish somebody zealotry. You can only sort of stop them in the act. And furthermore, if they turn around and kill you, then like. They're allowed to do that because you're not really allowed to kill them, right? You become what's called a rodef, which is discussed in the previous parak in Sanhedrin, right? A person who's trying to kill another person, that person or anyone can stop you by killing the attempted, uh, too many too many persons and killers, right? When Pinchas is trying to kill Zimri, Zimri has every right to be like, no, I do not have to let you kill me. I'll kill you first, right? So, right, it sort of gives you the sense that Pinchas is really doing an extreme thing where he's taking his own life into his hands to some degree. And the Gemara is going to sort of pull that out more, right? Because he's highly ideologically motivated in some way. Um, okay. So now we're gonna we're gonna get this into um okay. 
Right, so this is going to turn this whole thing. It's sort of going to, and I think it's it's um, picking up on something that's in the text. It's going to turn this into a larger tribal drama. It's not just there was one guy, right? Like Moshe said, okay, everybody, let's go get the Balpur guys, and it was. It's not clear how many people were on board or not, but the 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 Gemara here, acting as a midrash, is going to try and sort of pull out an, a drama that. Is happening there supposedly. Right. So the, the Shimonites came to Zimri, who's their leader, and they said, Zimri ben Salu, Amrulo, Right? And they're like, Zimri, it's getting serious, right? They're having they're starting to have these capital courts over there. What are you gonna do? Um, so Masa. What did he do? Ahmad the Kibates Khafdal at Elf Misrael. So he gathered these 24,000 people, right? These become like the people who are with him. It's not a plague that was ramming, ram, the running randomly out there. It was the people who were sort of on his side, this faction, right? It sort of becomes kind of like a Korach situation, if you know that story, where like there's like a faction of people and they're all going to meet the same fate, right? So Zimri gathers these 24,000 people and he goes to Cosby and he says, Hashmi'ili, basically he propositions her. Um, Amra, Amra lo bat melachani. She's like, excuse me, I'm a princess. And she's like, and I am saving myself for the most important Israelite out there and you are not that person. Right. Um, okay. She said, um, well, I, he's sort of referring to himself. Actually, I am pretty important. Right. Um, right. Um, actually, I'm even more important than Moshe because Moshe is actually the second brother and I'm the first brother. Right. So like, I'm super important. Um, and it doesn't seem so. This 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 turns quickly from negotiation to coercion. It seems, um, which like turns out Zimri is not such a nice guy, right? Um, so he grabs her by the hair, basically. He brings her to Moshe and he says, "Hey, Moshe," right? And he calls her Ben Amram, kind of like uh, obnoxiously, right? Um, He's like, "Am I allowed to sleep with this woman or not?" Right? The Imtamar Asura. And by the way, if you tell me that I'm not allowed to because she's not Jewish, well, your wife is not Jewish, right? Um, right? Who allowed you to marry Sipora, the daughter of Yitro? Right? And Moshe, the halacha was sort of lost to him. The halacha eluded him. Um, so which halacha is an interesting question, right? Is it the, the halacha that we're going to see later of Kanai and Pogimbo, or is it some other halachic justification that he could have given about his marriage to Sipora versus what Zimri is trying to do, right? So like, there, there's some sense of what's happened here, right? I guess like this is dramatized. And well, one second. Everybody starts crying. Right? Why are the people crying? Right? Because Moshe, right, in this moment of confrontation, Moshe has been revealed to be weak, right? To be not up to the task of defending the law and order that he's supposedly imposing against a legal challenge and against a practical challenge, right? Um, so there's some sort of like, I think this, you can you can maybe see this in the in the Humash text, but the way the Gemara reads and the way some of the Rishonim also read it is, right, what you're experiencing is like a breakdown of any sort of hierarchy, right? Or any sort of social control or any sort of shared legal norms, right? Because it's not even like Zimri is like Korach, who's like, I'm going to be in charge instead of you. He's just like, I'm going to do what I want, right? Um, okay. And that's what's causing crying, right? That there's some, the, the rule of law people are at a loss now, right? Like the ordinary, the, Moshe's like, we're going to deal with this through the courts, right? The courts are kind of at a loss because like, you know, somebody at the top doesn't actually have a rule for them. Right? They have nothing to enforce in some ways, right? Because they can't, like the law has been sort of shown to be like uh, incapable in this context. Okay, so like the crying, I think is sort of like, it's an expression of like, we don't actually have anything to say, right? Um, and that's sort of the big problem. Mitamem, where? What does the word mean to them? I don't say it. Oh, Nitalma. 
Um, so it's, a, it's actually used, I believe, in both, like when the rabbis talk about both cases of, um, what is it? In both cases of, right, the, the stories in Vayikra where, or in, in Bar actually, where people come and say like, hey, what about us? You know, the Benot Salafchad and the Pesach Sheni. I believe that the, um, I think Rashi there, but I'm sure he's basing it on Midrash, will say Alnit Almani Mani, right? He sort of lost it. He lost something, and that was for the purpose of the halacha being brought out by somebody else, right? The Benot Zlafchat sort of like merited that God sort of like took it away from Moshe and gave it to them. And maybe some people will actually say that here. I don't know if I have any on this sheet. We'll say the same thing here, right? That like actually, right, this is all part of God's plan. That Moshe loses it because it's Pinchas is one who really deserves it in some way, like to be the, the agent of this halacha in the world. Um, Um, right, so could you see it? It's sort of a positive thing in that it makes the way for Pinchas, but it's actually not, I think it, it certainly doesn't seem like a positive thing to the people, right? Reading it that way is sort of a reading of it as a positive thing, but it doesn't, it's not actually a positive thing. It doesn't seem, feel like a positive thing at the time, right? That Moshe doesn't know what to say. It seems like right? Moshe has just gathered all the leaders of, of the other 11 tribes, let's say, to start doing judgment against the people doing this thing. And Zimri is like, I'm going to do the thing, right? And like, you can't say anything to me because you're just as bad as me. Right, um, and there's sort of no response to that, which means all the rest of it is going to kind of fall about fall. Of... Okay, right. So, right. So I guess right using the phrase "nit almami menu." I'm just responding to the chat for people who might be watching this later. So, right, right. If Benot Salafat had it, it must be positive. I would say right when Moshe forgets something, I don't think that that's necessarily positive. Right, that is what it is. Right, and then the. the the rabbis sort of say he forgot it. They're sort of the ones who use that word. And then, but also, right, that's because these other people deserve to sort of have the halacha told over in their voice. Um, you could say that here, right? Moshe sort of, there's something about Pinchas that makes him more deserving than Moshe to have this halacha, I don't know, but like told over, but enacted in his voice slash body, right? Um, maybe, right? It's not a positive thing about Moshe, but it may be a positive thing about someone else. Um, okay. So now we have, this I mentioned, right? What did Pinchas see, right? This is a great opportunity for Midrash, right? When you have like a verb without an object, right? Um, like, right? He said to his brother, what did he say? Great question, right? There's so, there's so many possibilities. So here we have many things that he could have seen, right? Oh, he saw the situation and it sort of sent the wheels turning in his mind. And unlike Moshe, he remembered the halacha, right? And so what does he do when he remembers the halacha? He turns to Moshe and he says, right? He says like, Moshe, brother of the father of my father, right? Um, Did you not teach me when you came down from Harsinai? Kanaim Pogimbo, right? A man who, a Jewish man who has sex with a non-Jewish woman in public, let's say, but I don't know, right? Can be killed by zealots, right? Amarlo, Karaina, Degrita, Ihule Havi Parvakna, right? He's, Moshe sort of responds with this like um, saying of like, you know, the person who reads the letter should be the agent of its inaction, right? That like, yeah, you're right, right? It's like he, Moshe is like, you have refreshed my recollection, but why don't you be the one who enacts it because you remember, like you should sort of get the, the chance. Um, which that sort of like really normalizes Pinchas almost very much into this like Benot Salafat kind of thing where it's like, oh, Moshe forgot, but then it's like, oh, actually there's already a pre-existing halacha and like, we're just gonna do it and everybody's gonna be had. Moshe's gonna give a stamp of approval. Um, but Shmuel says no. Right, Shmuel says he didn't, meaning maybe he saw and he remembered the halacha of Kanaim Pogimpo. But then it didn't, they didn't get into this whole like, you know, rabbinic back and forth of like, oh, is this the right situation? Who should do it? I don't know, right? It was more like, right? Right? This pasuk from, from Mishlei, I'll say in another context where it comes up in a second, there's neither wisdom nor understanding nor counsel against the Lord. Meaning this is not the time for debates and back and forth. He just saw like something, you know, like give out, right? Something terrible is happening, so must stop, right? Um, Right? He didn't stop to ask his teacher and go through the proper channels because God's name was being desecrated by Zimri and he just had to put a stop to it. Um, Actually what Pinchas saw is that this um, angel is coming to kill people or kill the people, right? That like actually, right, the 
when did the plague start, right? The plague starts basically the minute before it ends, right? Pinchas is sort of like, like in this moment where there's this breakdown and there, nobody knows what to answer halakhically and Zimri's like, great, I'm gonna do whatever I want. And all the people in Shimon are kind of like egging him on. And then at that moment, right, this angel comes down and starts to kill people and Moshe and Pinchas is like, right? The thing he needs to stop is not only the desecration of God's name, but the plague itself, right? And that's why he sort of, there's no time to lose, right? There's no time for debate here, just do it, right? Um, okay, so those are three options, let's say, for what he saw. In terms of this pasuk, ein chokhmav, ein etzah. No, ein chokhmav, ein tunav, ein etzah, neged Hashem. This pasuk actually comes up um, in the context of the, the sugi of kavod habriot, right? Human dignity, and when human dignity does or does not override halacha. Um, one of the famous cases is, right, um, if you're wearing shot, you find you realize that your clothing is shot nays, which you're not allowed to wear, and you're in public, right? So what should you do, right? So it depends, whatever. But the the position that you should take off your shot nays and just like walk around naked because, right? That you know, basically nothing can compare to violating God's will. It doesn't matter how embarrassed you're going to be, right? You you don't get to sort of make calculations against God's will. But it seems like right there's it's sort of um it's a little bit of a different use than here. But there's some idea of sort of this pasuk is taken to as a, a support for what might otherwise seem like extremism, right? That like, don't overthink it when it comes to God's honor, just do it, right? Um, okay. Now we have this, this um, so this, I, this line I like, I'm not, there's this whole thing about how Pinchas like has to sneak in, which is, well, I'll get there, I'll get there. I was going to skip it, so I was going to tell you about it, but I'm just going to read it, right? So Pinchas comes up with his spear, right? There's a lot of fun gematria about Romach and Ramach Evarim, right? His sort of like a number of, supposedly the number of, um, what are they called? Like limbs that people have, but, right? right? So, right, we have, the, the, the rabbis are painting this image where Pinchas is, is sort of coming out of a halachic discussion that Moshe is maybe failing, but Pinchas has sort of succeeded at, right? But so then he then he picks up his spear because you can't pick up, you can't have the spear in the Beit Midrash, which is sort of like an interesting thing, right? There's there, there's a few other interesting sources about sort of like the way the rabbis see weapons, right? And where do they belong? Um, it has some contemporary relevance also maybe for us. But like, what's interesting here is that I think it's kind of like a metaphor also, right? Like, you can't, the person who's holding the weapons actually can't be the person engaged in the Beit Midrash style argument, right? If you're going to get it back and forth into it with Moshe, of like, I don't know, is this the right case? Is it not the right case? If you're going to write Habalim Loch, right? If somebody comes and asks advice about Kanaim Pogimbo, you tell him no, right? So like, it, it seems sort of like Pinchas has to make a choice as to which of those modes he's going to do. And the Moshe mode of like, let's talk about the halacha and let's learn things together and analyze cases. And then let's have judgments in court. It has broken in some way. And Pinchas has to sort of like consciously abandon that to do a different thing. Um, so he, he, he takes the blade out of his spear, spear um, cause he has to, right. Like if you're, they've painted this picture of like 24,000 people. So he has to get to the place where stuff is happening, right? So he can't just like run in with a spear. Everybody's going to tackle him and he's going to be dead. Um, so he hides it and he's like, as if he's, um, he's like walking with a walking stick. Um, and he said, so he shows up and he basically says, hey, can I have a turn? Um, as if like he wants to participate in this sort of sexual debauchery situation. Um, so they let him through because the Shimonites are like, oh, this is great. Our influence is like, you know, up, right? And Moshe's influence is down because Pinchas is like Moshe's relevant, relative, but like he's running our side. So this is good, um, right? So he, um, and then like, they feel good. Maybe even, maybe Moshe's even on, ch changed his mind. We convinced him. This is great, right? So Rabbi Yochanan, and then where Pinchas sort of obviously like, you know, he's, he has tricked them all and he kills Simri. Okay. Um, two more things. Okay. Rabbi Yochanan says six miracles were performed for Pinchas, right? Shishani seen there in the Midrash, there's like lists of like 12 sometimes also. There's a bunch of versions of this. Um, this one will do. It's short, short and sweet and to the point, right? Right. It should have been that when Zimri realized somebody's coming to like attack him, he should have stopped having sex, right? But he didn't, which is the, the circumstances that make it permissible to kill him is that he's still engaged in this sin, okay? Um, and he should have said something, but he didn't, right? It seems like, um, right, this is why people will say that they're in a tent. So the people, once Pinchas goes inside, people don't really know what's happening, right? Um, and that's that's like a big part of the drama as the Gemara sees it is sort of like 
Pinchas, the situation has to has to work so that Pinchas not only does the thing, but he has to convince the people outside what happened and that it was the right thing when he comes out, or else they're just going to kill him too. Um, right? He didn't say anything. Right? He's sort of like very precise aim, let's say. Um, so that, right, the idea being that he's like preserving the evidence they were actually having sex, right? Because otherwise you're going to end up with like a whole revisionist history of like, oh no, they were just talking or something, right? And who are you to kill such well-meaning people, right? Um, so like, um, Okay, the Chachalanishmatumin Haromach, and then they sort of like, you know, were miraculously attached to his spear. I mean, this is a little gruesome. I'm not like, I don't mean to say no. Um, right? The Chachabamalach, the Higbia Tamashkof, right? And then like he sort of carries them out on the spear, and like the space magically gets miraculously gets bigger. And then they sort of, um, and the last one is the Chachabamalach, the Hishripam. At that very moment, the angel started to kill the people so that, right? What? So, in the English here, they, meaning like in the Hebrew, it just says that's that's one of the miracles. Is at that point the angel starts to kill the people. Why is that good? So the the Safari English or Steinsaltz or whatever says, oh, it distracts them from interfering. That there are other versions of midrash that say that more explicitly. It doesn't have to. I, there could be some other reason why this is a, a helpful thing for Pinchas, but um, it, that's sort of an interesting thing, right? The idea that actually what Pinchas is doing is is first of all at great personal risk, and second of all that he um, right like. Even after he does it, it's not like, you know, he does this, the plague stops and everybody comes back to their senses immediately, right? Like he's still the outlier, right? Like the leaders don't know what to say. Other people are doing what they want. And Pinchas is like, like this crazy zealot, right? Like, it's not like all of a sudden people are like, right? We're like, oh, Pinchas is the hero of the story. Or maybe he's a very problematic hero, but he's sort of like, you know, he's the, the protagonist in the sense that his actions are determining the course of it. But for all, for the, from the perspective of the people at the time, like, no, he's just this crazy guy, right? Um, so, okay. So Pemchath came and slammed on the ground before God. Um, um, right? Is this really worth 24,000 Jews dying? Just these like two people having sex, right? right? That's how many people it was. This is from a... a a retelling of the story in Tehillim, right? Amar Rabbi Elazar, means vayit palel, right? Um, that he prayed, right? He said to God, sort of like, is this really worth it? And who does that kind of sound like, right? Is this really worth killing all these people for this one action? Well, Moshe does stuff like that. It's a little bit, it feels to me a little like, a, like an Avram thing also, right? You're gonna really kill the whole city, right? For just like one person, um, okay. So Pinchas prayed, maybe, Namar Ella, Marbi Elazar, Vayitpalel lo Namar, it doesn't say that he prayed, Ella, Vayitpalel, right? He did judgment or something, or Vayitpalel, right? Melamed kiviachol sha'asa pililut im kono, right? He sort of, he had sort of a, a confrontation with God, let's say, um, and the angels try to push him away, but he gets through, and God says, no, 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 let him come. Right, that like it's not just the people who are opposing Pinchas. Pinchas is like really all alone against everybody. Right, the angels think he's crazy, the humans think he's crazy, and he's coming to God and saying, right, um, you know, like, um, sorry. So he's sort of like coming to God in judgment, as if to say, like, God, you're overreacting almost, right? And God basically accepts it because he's he's sort of from this line of zealots in some way. Right. And now, like, as if this was not enough, this is the very end, right? The tribes begin to demean Pinchas. Even after everything has happened and the plague has stopped, they're like, Pinchas, right? Like, you, you know, like, you're not so hot yourself, right? You're a grandmother. The, the Midrash says that his mother is, or maybe the Torah says that his mother is one of the child, children of Yitro, maybe. So, right, like, you're, you have sort of non-Jewish lineage yourself. And what's wrong with you? Um, just like sort of killing people without trial. Um, so Pinchas, then like the Torah sort of comes to his defense. Um, and then he gets this breach alone, which I'm actually, which talks about, right? He's going to sort of, right? He's because, right here, I would say in, in contemporary interpretations, it's very common to understand the breach alone as like a balance, a counterbalance to the zealotry, right? That like Pinchas is like this zealous guy. He's wrathful, he's vengeful. It has its place, but you don't actually want that guy around all the time. So he gets this breach shalom, which is like a, like a, a little bit of a tempering down of his zealotry. Um, I know one of my teachers, Sally Mayer, um, 
who, sorry, my head. So her oldest son is named Pinchas Shalom. He was born when, between two summers of the Jewish Summer High School program, right? Because she she felt like the name Pinchas sort of carries these violent connotations and she had to also have the name Shalom. And they were, at least when he was a baby, I don't know now, they were very mocked to always call him both, right? Um, right. So that's one view of Briti Shalom, but it seems like the Gemara actually is not necessarily there. I'm like, like Baruch Moshe. God said to Moshe, Hakadim lo Shalom, right? You should be the first one to greet Pinchas, meaning in some ways, right, there's sort of like a hierarchical, like who says, who greets whom first, right? So the person who, who greets you is like, like, it's basically putting Pinchas on a level somewhat above Moshe. Um, right? Therefore say Shalom to him, right? This kapara that he has brought now for the people sort of entitles him to give kapara forever, right? He's gonna become a Kohen because, right? Like the, the we're sort of gonna assimilate him into the ritualized form of kapara that the Kohanim enact through sacrifices because he did this one sort of like extraordinary extrajudicial outside of ritual kapara, um, which seems like it's not, it is a little bit of a tempering message, but it's actually not. It's basically like he did, the, he's so good at kapara. We might like, we want him on our team, right? Um, so I think that, first of all, it's fun to bar, I think. Second of all, right, I think that what it does is it paints this picture of Pinchas is really working against the grain, right? Where like, Everything, Moshe himself has basically lost control, right? And Zimri has this like 24,000 people on his side and Pinchas is able to sort of like turn it around through his like very intense righteous anger. Um, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to some of the Mepharshim, like I said. No, some of them are very long. Okay, so I, I wanna go back as the entry point into um, Psukim Dalit and Hay, four and five. Hashem says to Moshe, right, take all the leaders and impale them. And Moshe tells the people, tell the leaders, go kill all the people who are doing Balpur, right? Or worshiping Balpur. It's, it's interesting how the word is Vayitzmedu, who are like coupling with Balpur, right? It's, it seems like it's sort of like, it's a little bit of like a, like the sexual aspect of it. It's not just like the sexual aspect was like a gateway into a Vodazara, and that's what we really cared about. They're sort of bound together in some way. But in any case, right? So, in fact, we're all going to think about like, well, what did God want Moshe to do? What did Moshe do? Do those fit together? And how does it relate to what Pinchas did? Right. Um, so here's Targum pseudo Jonathan, and apparently there is a Hebrew existing Hebrew translation for those who want to follow it along. Right. Um, so the Lord said to Moses, "Take all the heads of the people, right, umane yaton dayanin, and." appoint them as judges, right? The pasuk that says, kach et kol there's like, then insert the parentheses, make them judges against all the people who have done Baal or sins, and then impale them, those other guys, right? Bring the people, they'll be the judges, and then go and execute the sort of lay people. Um, right, so it's an interesting question, right? Like, uh, how much are when Chazal are talking, in the, in the chat, right? How much when Chazal are talking about Pinchas, are they talking about other forms of Kana'ut that they experienced politically in their time or slightly before their time? I don't know. It's a good question. Um, I mean, I think they do actually, they're not really resisting Pinchas, right? They just say like, not everybody is Pinchas, right? Um, I don't know. Okay, so basically, right, this is sort of one of the traditional understandings is that like, oh, it sounds like God said do thing A, but Moshe did thing B, but no, just read, you have to read the Pasuk that says thing A, it doesn't really say thing A, it says thing B. It says to do what Moshe actually did, which is gather together leaders so that you can create a, like sort of a, a adjudication process for the sinners. Um, like a, you know, a fine rabbinic way of reading that Pasuk, though it doesn't seem to be the shot, but okay. Um, okay. And then an interesting question is like, well, why couldn't we just let that process run its course? Right? Why does Pinchas have to be involved? So here is, um, so Rabbeinu Bachia sort of um, agrees with that reading, right? The point is not to execute the leaders, but to execute the sinners, right? Um, and then he brings a connection to the golden calf, right? Moshe, and we're gonna see this a little later, but it's sort of interesting, um, right? There at the golden calf, Moshe said, you know, to the tribe of Levi, okay, go kill it, kill all the sinners, right? Um, so this is sort of like that, but it's in some ways more regularized if it's being done through a court system, right? Um, and the judge of Israel and the people, even though the text doesn't specify that the judge is right. So then the question is, did they actually do this? So Rabbi Machia says, yeah, it seems like they probably did, right? Moshe said, we're gonna do this, and like, they're gonna do it, right? Um, or maybe 
they didn't because Pinchas, they didn't get a chance because Pinchas kind of came in. And that's actually like very, well, which one is it, right? Did they do it or did they not do it? It's interesting that he kind of, um, it seems almost like, right, they could have done it, but they didn't have a chance because Pinchas did it. And that, that, that one way of thinking about it is like, Pinchas did a thing that could have been accomplished in some other way, right? It could have been accomplished by a regular judicial process. He just did it faster. That's sort of one way maybe of looking at it, but it's not the only way, right? It could be that he did something that could not have been accomplished by a different process, um, right? And then the people, but they were crying because of the plague, or maybe they were crying because Moshe lost it. Um, and I think that's actually, Moshe lost his halacha. And I think that's also kind of telling, right? To me, it seems like this whole, the way of talking about Moshe losing the halacha, like I tried to say in the Gemara, right? Both the plague or the mass death event, which may or may not be a plague as we'll see, right? and Moshe losing it are symbols of some kind of a breakdown, right? That like all of the structures that you're used to experiencing that sort of order your world are absent, right? It's one thing to have a bunch of people sinning, but like in principle, right? Like they could get arrested and tried. And it's another thing to be like, actually like nobody's gonna be trying anybody, sorry, right? There are no rules. Um, so I think that that like, in some ways the, the plague becomes the manifestation or the reification or something of the, the the midrashic, let's say, loss loss of Moshe's leadership, or maybe all of the leadership, as we'll see. Okay, so Barbanel also talks about this question, right? When God saw this great sin that was being done by Israel in public, and all of the right, so God saw the sin; it was being done by regular Joe Schmoes, right? But actually, like, it's not like the leadership is totally off the hook because the officers didn't do anything, right? Nobody was doing anything to stop it. So God said hey, right, actually, it's not just the sort of low-level sinners who are a problem here. The leadership themselves are a problem, right? Um, and God did say, right, like, uh, basically, I'm about to get really angry. If you want to stop it, make a spectacle, right? Kill the leaders for being useless, and then you can, like, sort of divert my anger, right? You can show that you took it seriously enough, almost, that, like, I don't have to be angry because you did something extreme. I'm not going to do something extreme if you do something extreme. Um, but Moshe's like, oh, I don't like that idea, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, like, you know, it's it's sort of like when you give, like, a, like, in high school, when you're, like, you know, when you tell a kid, like, you know, put away whatever, your notes during dominating or something, hypothetically, right? Or, like, you know, you can't have your phone out. So you're, like, put your phone in your bag, and they're, like, put it on their desk, right? And then it's, like, or, like, they, you know, they don't do it. So you could say, like, put your phone in your bag, or, or like, basically, I'm, I don't know, this is a terrible example, but maybe some people experience this in parenting also, right? You sort of, sometimes you end up threatening, I try not to do this, but some people do, right? You end up threatening with a severe consequence, right? It's, like, it's too late now, right? You didn't put your phone away when I asked, so now you're going to get suspended. And they're, like, okay, okay, I'll put away my phone, right? And you have a choice to be like, okay, the phone is away, we're done. Or to be like, no, it's too late. Right? And it seems like Moshe is trying that. He's like, okay, God, I get it. Like, we've been sort of negligent. So like, we're going to do our job now, right? And hoping that he's not at the point where he's actually going to get suspended. Meaning that like, you know, that it was just a bluff in some way. That God was really just trying to scare him into doing the right thing. So he's going to gather the people to do the thing, the leaders to do the thing that they didn't do before, that they should have done. And that way, like God will back off. Um... Okay, and then I just, I left this in here just as a thing. So it's explained that Moshe, Allah HaShalom, we always read this Allah HaShalom. I just read an article or skimmed an article that compellingly tries to argue that Ayin He stands for Eved HaShem and that Allah HaShalom is a back formation, that Moshe Rabbeinu, it only appears to people, it appears with a select group of figures in, Midra, in rabbinic midrash um, and that it, it seems to be people who are called Eved HaShem in some way and that later on it becomes Allah HaShalom Anyways, just an interesting thing. Basically, when people come in contact with like Muslim texts where like peace be upon him is sort of like an ordinary thing to say, people reinterpret, like assume that Allah must mean the same thing. Anyways, that was just my little, um, a thing to know. Um, and if you want to know about that article, I can send it to you. Okay, so what does it mean in the pale them, right? So Pinchas sort of like heard this whole thing and he's like, you know what, Moshe, this is not going to cut it. Moshe, Pinchas decides that he needs to sort of like impale somebody basically. And he does so with the spear. Um, and then the Rabbanah says, actually, like, I think Ramban proved correctly that Moshe was doing the thing that he said he was going to do, right? He, they, people, the leaders got their act together. They were going through this judicial process. Um, but it was Pinchas who sort of, like, um, needed to stop the plague, right? And then the judges didn't have to judge anymore because Pinchas saved everybody from death. Um, and that means that some of the people who would have gotten executed otherwise didn't. 
which is kind of an interesting view of Pinchas. But on the one hand, he stops the plague. He also stops the sort of mass executions, right? It's almost like he's saying to Moshe, like, you think that you're taking like the less dramatic way out, but your way actually involves more people dying, right? Whereas like a symbolic um, and those people end up, according to another possibility, they do end up dying before the will go into Eretz but they don't necessarily get executed, right? So like Moshe, it's almost like like sort of what, what Vi was saying before, right? That like the, the symbolic execution of Zimri in this public way carries the same kind of like um, messaging effect as a bunch of sort of like small fry executions would have. Um, that like it kind of it can, that can kind of like slam the brakes on whatever bad social trajectory you're on and cause God to back off. Um, okay, and then he talks about how right like everybody was sort of like, when we say everybody was about to do it, that's everybody except for Zimri, and that's part of the problem is that like um, you know Zimri doesn't care like right it, in the Barbanel's perspective of sort of there's like a leadership failure and then there's a layperson failure, then it sort of makes the failure or the actions of Zimri more pronounced because he's sort of doubling down on the leadership failure as opposed to everyone else who can be shamed into doing the right thing. He's kind of like, no, right? And like once we're sort of elevating the status of the leaders then that makes him sort of um, more interesting. Okay. Um, and then he says, by the way, right? The plague wasn't a communicable disease at the end, right? But right? everybody who behaved appropriately stayed alive. Right, it wasn't a, a, a communicable disease, sort of an infectious disease, right? It was actually just like a, a punishment, like zapping from God, which is sort of like maybe, right? As I think we'll see next week, right? Sometimes it seems like that's not how plagues work, right? They, they once they're out there, they're out there. But the Abarbanel sort of like sees this as an interesting thing, of like, like he's right. He sees it as very much, right? Like there's a bunch of people who are deserving of death. God is going to kill them unless you sort of placate God in some way. And that placation has to be with some public spectacle that sort of seems to restore order. That's what it seems like. Um, okay. I'm just, yes. Okay, we're gonna look at these two. I'm gonna run through them quickly. I think they both add a little bit of nuance. And then I wanna, I wanna finish with the two Gemaras. One from Shabbat, I think, and one from Sota. Okay, so the anger will subside. Be a shov haron Hashem, right? This is what God says, right? Like, you know, impale these people, and God's anger will subside. Meaning, right? One way of asking, of saying, when did the plague start? Is saying when God, when it says God got angry, that's what that means. That means that there were tangible consequences to God's anger in the world. People start to die. Okay. Right? It was necessary to undo God's anger even after justice was done. Right, because the judicial process, the earthly judicial process, can only kill people who follow a very strict set of procedural rules. Right, there were two witnesses, and the witnesses said, warned them and said, you know, you could get the death penalty for that, and they said yes. Right, which is probably not most people having illicit sexual relationships. Right, like, like just, I mean, just in general. Right, like it's it's a very interesting question to think about why the rabbis sort of see these sets of like have these procedural requirements that seem to make like the whole death penalty essentially unworkable, but okay. So like, so like the, the earthly courts, right? The whole point of the earthly courts is like restoring our ordinary rule of law, but that's not actually gonna really deal with the social problem here, right? So on the, like in some ways, this is a different angle on the breakdown of the rule of law, which is like our laws as they exist are not actually like well suited to solving this problem, right? To, or to eliminating this problem, let's say, right? Um, but if God does judgment, you go below He would get first of all the people who don't meet the procedural requirements, right? And once and once the sort of destroyer is out there, right? Similar ideas with Korban Pesach, right? Once something is out there in the world, it's gonna like we saw this last week with Rabbi Akiva also, right? It's gonna attach to other people who have something who are sort of tangentially connected, right? God, it's gonna attach also even to people who had bad thoughts. Right. What does God mean when he says, turn back my anger? It seems like God wants the sinners dead. So why is, and like, maybe he's sort of accepting the Barbanel, that the people who would die in the plague are the sinners. So why does God care whether you do justice or I do justice? The answer is because when God does it, it's going to be a lot worse. Right. And that seems to be kind of like, right. If you do justice and you sort of execute the people who can be executed within the parameter, the procedural parameters of Jewish law, that's fine. God feels okay with that, even though there are people still walking around who did bad stuff. 
But if you don't even do that, then there needs to be like a bigger purge in some way. And I think that's part of like the, the tension that's underlying a lot of these sources is like um, when there's, right, when, when you, you can question even whether a norm exists, right? When a norm has been broken, it's one thing. But once, once it starts to seem like that norm doesn't exist at all, that's like the plague moment where like things are really falling apart. You have no predictability at all, right? And that's the sort of restoring the level of sort of predictability of your order is the goal here rather than necessarily eliminating all the sitters. Um, okay. um, and I just have one, okay, I'm gonna have time for my last, my last little drusha, but I thought this Meshech was also really interesting because part of the question is like, what's, why is Pinchas, right? Pinchas is the one who's sort of doing something extrajudicial. Um, yes, right? So David HaMelech has a choice for a plague versus a war and chooses the plague, right? Um, but in some sense, that's because he's being punished. It's not that there are sinners in B'nai Israel who need to be punished, right? It's not that he has, like he would have to sort of punish himself, which maybe he could do, but I don't know. He's already been punished. Okay, B'nai Ba'egel. So I'm gonna read this Meshach Chachma because right, it's, it's, it's sort of getting into, I think the psychology or the spiritual makeup or both of Pinchas in an interesting way, okay? What is it that Pinchas is doing that his action can be exemplary in a way that ordinary executions can't necessarily? Okay, the first time that B'nai Israel did this big idolatry sin, right, in the golden calf, Moshe told the tribe of Levi, hey, let's go kill a bunch of people, and they did, and that ended the plague that happened there, right, that saved people in some ways, right, saved the rest of the people, or prevented God from sort of totally wiping everyone out, so Neshachach was like, well, why didn't he just do the same thing this time, right, Moshe, like, why is Moshe so feeble in this situation, he know he has a playbook for this situation, Okay, um, right? It didn't happen this time because at this point they were already sanctified for the Mishkan service. Right? If you have God's priests fighting the Baal worshippers, then it becomes sort of like a turf battle, right? They're nogim devar. They're sort of they have a an interest. They're interested parties, right? Everybody doesn't see like this is just a turf battle, right? They don't want people worshiping other people. They want all the sacrifices to go to their temple, right? Um, and that B'nai Levi, in some ways, by being institutionalized, have lost the ability to be the zealous enforcers, right? Before Moshe could say, Mila Shem Eli, or whatever, right? We're doing this for God, and that was believable, but it's no longer believable because they're part of the institutionalized hierarchy now. They can't any longer go out and be zealous enforcers, right? And Pinchas is an outsider, right? Because he's not a priest. It's interesting, he is a Levite, but okay, right? There's a little bit of like a, it's a little mushy there, but I think the idea is interesting even if it doesn't totally work, right? Um, Pinchas is, is a Levite. And in fact, right, unlike other people who are directly descended from Elazar, he's not a Kohen. So some people might've thought actually Pinchas's personal interest is in the undermining of the Kahuna. So when Pinchas himself acts zealously, it's obvious that he's acting with like pure motives, right? And I think that's sort of like, um, I thought this reading was really interesting because it highlights the idea of sort of an institutional response versus a non-institutional response. And one of the things about an institutional response and sometimes a personal response also is that there's, there can be more ulterior motives and more implications of that. And the thing that it's sort of pulling out about Pinchas is that he's supposed to have no ulterior motives, right? The Kanai and Pogimbo, right? The more you talk about something, maybe the more we question your motives, right? But if you're like really, really moved, right? That, and you just do a thing, that's what Kanaut is, right? It's a thing where like, you haven't really analyzed it so much because like, and you have one very straightforward motive. Um, okay, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna speed for two minutes to my, my last thought. So I'm gonna be in source eight. Um, okay, so remember I said our location is Shitim. So Israel dwelt in Shitim. Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Shitim Shema. So Rabbi Eliezer said, yeah, that's because it was named Shitim. It's telling us where it happened. This is like a little biographical note, but whatever it is, right? Historiographical note, right? Rabbi Yeshua says, no, it's called Shitim because they did foolish things there. Okay, that's point, that's thing one. Thing two is from Sota, relatively popular thing here, I think. Reshlaki Shamar, right? So Sota is about a woman who is suspected of adultery by her husband, many things to unpack that we will not. But the, the way the case is introduced in the Torah is a man if his wife goes astray. Rishlaki says, and one of the things that happens in the, in the Mishnah and the Gemara and Sota is that 
at least in the first parak, it seems, I think, and I think you can show this, that the rabbis are very interested, not so much in like locating all sin in, in fit, like women who commit infidelity, but the, in, in questions of sin and sexual sin in general, right? There's like a long passage about Shimshon and his weakness in women and whatever, right? So they're, they're sort of like interested in these questions more generally, not in like the, and, and in some ways, like a more gender blind way than the, than you would think from the case in the in the Torah, but okay. So Rish Lakish says, a person only will sin if he, if a, a foolishness, a, a spirit of folly enters him, because it says, if his wife goes astray, but it's written with a sin, which you could also pronounce instead as she, she becomes foolish, right? So um, the, the previous, the person that the Lubavitchers call the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, who is known as the Rebbe Rayatz, um, Rebbe Yosef Yitzchak and I believe like talks about this. It may it may come up in Lubavitch's report, and I'm not sure if this is unique to Lubavitch, but I think it's it's a it's a big thing in Lubavitch, and that's where I saw it. So I'm, I, I did not find a good. It's actually weirdly difficult to find like texts of Maran cut and pasteable on, online, at least for me. Um, but here's what he basically says, right? People sin because of shtut, right? But, and people sin in, right? The sin of Zimri and Cosby happens because of Shtut. Where does the word Shittim elsewhere appear in the Bible? Does anyone know? Um, something in the Mishkan was made of them. Yes, right. At Shittim apparently is a song somewhere. But at Shittim, right, that the Shittim trees, which are become part of the structure of the Mishkan. So the Rebbe says this, right, that like our our goal in this world is to turn our folly from negative sort of impulses into something positive, use sort of whatever our, like sort of work on ourselves so that we can create God's home. And right, they, the Bible just talked about Dira Batachni, right? God's, God's dwelling in this world with the Mishkan symbolizes, right? But I think, and right, furthermore, he would say, it's not that you do that by getting rid of your folly, right? You, you always need to have a little bit of, but he calls, you need to be like a little bit Meshuga, but for a good thing, right? That you sort of, and that's what Pinchas in some ways is, right? So if this like this she team thing kind of I think fits in nicely, right? The idea that you're supposed to turn your sort of negative lack of control into something positive that can cause, can bring God into the world in some ways. And that in order to do that, sometimes, right, you need to be a little bit, you can't be a total rule follower, right? And that's what Pinchas is to some degree, right? He's not like really a rule follower. He's following the rule that says that if you have to ask, you can't follow the rule, right? He's like doing this, extrajudicial, right? All of these midrashim that we saw are some of the commentaries, right? That like are just, are sort of painting a picture of a breakdown of society, right? Or a breakdown of the ordinary rule of law or the ordinary courts, even though it seems like that's what Moshe is trying, that's not gonna work as well. Sometimes you, when you need to shake something up, you need to be a little Davar, let's say, right? Um, and that's sort of what Pinchas symbolizes, right? And that like, in some ways that causes the immediate turning around, even though, right, as we see, like it's actually very tenuous the way that the Marcy, where like people still don't even necessarily trust him after he does it, but it's the stylized version of the story, at least, is that that sort of extreme action is the thing that, right, can, can sort of press pause on the deterioration of institutions and maybe reinvigorate them. Um, I, 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 don't try this at home necessarily, but uh, that's what I'll say. Um, thanks for joining. I'm, I'm happy to, I know I went a little over, but I'm happy to take um, questions or comments and thank you for joining. And I hope I'll see some of you next week. Any questions, feel free to- Nice to see those of you I know and those I don't know. It's nice to see all of you. Um, yeah, Caitlin. Hi. Um my question relates to Shatim. Um, is this a piece of terminology that comes up in later writings, especially in the mission of the Gemara? So I don't know. I haven't, I did not do an exhaustive search, so I don't know. Okay. I mean, I think that by this idea of stoop for sure does. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, if anybody, I'm not, I'm not sure what people say about it. Because the, the whole idea of they lived in Shatim is very interesting. Right, that they're living, well, right, it's like this place where they're sort of falling, right? Into yeah, the, yeah, that yeah. they're dwelling in these particular transgressions. Right, that is interesting. Uh, Zev says, is there any in contrast between pure motives of Pinchas and those in the Netavivu? I was also thinking about the Netavivu context, right, of people who sort of are like acting out of turn in a way that's very risky and they get zapped, right? It's like Pinchas does the zapping, but I think that's, I mean, in some ways Pinchas like 
one of the things that the Gemara shows us is that Pinchas, like, right, there were many ways that it could have gone wrong. And he could have either just ended up dead or ended up having murdered somebody instead of committed like this permitted form of zealotry, right? Um, and I think that like, yeah, that's an interesting question. Like, it's a very interesting question as to how, how we relate those things, especially because he's a Kohen. But I think part of it is also he's not yet a Kohen. That's maybe where the Meshachach comes in, right? Not of an of you as Kohanim, right? Their whole job is to follow the rules, right? That like, it's a very, very regimented thing. If you look at the parak before, it's very choreographed before none of an of you who do their thing that God didn't command. Everything is like, God said this, and then Moshe said this, and Aaron did it, and then his sons, you know, his sons helped him, and then they did the next thing that Moshe said. It's very, very choreographed, and they have a very clear role. In some ways, because Pinchas is an outsider, when he does this, right? That makes, that's one of the things that makes it very different, right? And it, you could say, right, assimilating him into the priesthood afterwards is a way of sort of like preventing recurrences, maybe. Um, and also uh, Pin, um, Pinchas is reacting to uh, an action with Nadav and Navihu, they're just kind of spontaneously going in and doing something. Right, like there's an identified problem with Pinchas which like, there may be other potential solutions too, but they might not be working so well. Whereas none of an who like there actually isn't a problem. Like things have, the, the mm -hmm. thing, the goal of the day has already been achieved, which is like God has appeared to the people and fire came out and like, it's all good, right? Um, so yeah, that's like a, a, another interesting contrast. Okay, thanks all. All right, so thank you, Ms. Gedweiser, as always for a fascinating and I, I'll even say fun class. Oh, and to everyone, in our learning community here at Jerisha for coming out on a Monday night, joining us on Zoom, on Facebook, and on Jerisha Live. We really, really you know, enjoy your participation and learning with you. Uh, we hope to see you again next week or later this week for another one of our spring classes and be well. <laughs>